You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Revenge of the Quiz Show! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Jen Newman, and with me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And special guest, our editor, Marissa McCool. Hello. Hey. Hi. I was going to say we get the Marissa bump. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so today, we decided to all be lazy. And by lazy, I mean, have a good time. <laughs> and we all threw together a little quiz, and we're going to test each other's knowledge on a wide variety of subjects. What subjects, you may ask? Listen and find out. And I say that because I don't know the answer. The people are starting to wander back in there full of scotch and ready to fight. They've been out drinking and now they're thinking how angry they are because it's cold. We're going to start off with Lauren. Lauren? Take it away. I hope you know some of the answers because we are grading this quiz. <laughs> I know we've looked at creation myths in some previous shows, but I love them and I could probably mine several more quizzes from them. So that's what we're doing to start off. Five questions about creation myths. Sounds Ooh. great. All right. We ready? Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question one. Well, nearly every civilization on Earth has its own creation myth and sometimes several. They generally fit into one of six basic types. Which of these four choices is not a standard creation myth archetype? Oof. A. This is the hardest question, by the way. <laughs> A. Earth diver. So somebody diving into the earth. B. Ex nihilo, or out of nothing. C. Cosmic trees. And D. World parent. Jem, since it's your show, you can start first. What's your answer? Mm. A, B, C, or D? So I know Ex Nihilo is sometimes a creation. I, I don't know how common it is. Sometimes people will argue that the Judeo-Christian creation story is Ex Nihilo, although I would dispute that if you read Genesis. <laughs> I mean, John is kind of more Ex Nihilo than, than Genesis is. Anyway. John of Patmos or John the Disciple? John the... Revelationist was Patmos. Yes, yes, I know. Okay. There's also the book of John, right? Yes. But not the, the gospel according to John was the disciple. Allegedly, it's not actually written by him because it was written about 100 <laughs> years after Jesus. But we've, we've gone into this in the past. So yeah, I'm talking about gospel according to John. Anyway, so definitely Earth Diver is one. I'd say Ex Nihilo probably is one. It certainly has been proposed. We have 50 questions to go through here, Jim. Oh, my God. 
no, we, no, we I only have Not five questions. I'm just saying, let's 10. go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> trees. I'm going to say trees is not one of the standard ones because I know Earth Mother happens. Yeah, okay, let's go with trees. I mean, I could name some trees, but... Okay. <laughs> so can I. Tree? I am no tree. Ashlyn. <laughs> uh, I'm going with trees because I'm pretty sure Jem asked this question before and I'm going to trust Jem's expertise. Laura? I don't think that I did. Oh, I was going to go with the Earth Mother one. That's the last one, right? World Parent is D. World Parent, yeah. yeah. But like, so you said the most common, right? There are six basic archetypes. Okay, so one of these these is is not not a basic archetype. So does that mean that it doesn't happen at all, or it's just not characterized as an archetype? Yeah, it's not one that's very common. Okay. I'm going to go with Ex Nihilo. Okay. And Marissa. Well, I know a lot of creation myths, and I know one of them is about being on the back of a giant turtle. And I know mm-hmm. one of them is that someone sang everything into existence. So I feel like cosmic trees could be <laughs> a creation myth because nothing is too far out there for the imagination. But I feel like out of nothing is more scientific than myth in creation mm-hmm. myth. So it might be a myth somewhere, but I feel like that might be the one that's not myth, but rather fact. Uh, <laughs> it could be both. True. <laughs> so are you going with Earth Diver, Out of Nothing, Cosmic Trees, or World Parent? Out of Nothing. Out of Nothing. Okay. The answer was C, Cosmic Trees. Ah. <laughs> oh. Who got a point? I did. All right. I piggybacked off Gem, though. Yay. Yay. Half a point for me. <laughs> the, the six general archetypes are, and it's not to say that there aren't other creation myths, but these are the ones that get lumped together, and then there's the et ceteras. So there's creation from chaos, creation with an earth diver, creation by emergence, creation out of nothing, the ex nihilo, and creation from a world parent, and creation with divine twins mm. are the six basic archetypes. Yeah, from What's chaos is really stories? more of the Genesis story. Yep. Cool. All right. Question two. The Enuma Elish is the oldest surviving creation myth we have that depicts a battle between two deities and results in creation of the Earth and humans. These deities were A. Tiamat and Marduk B. Nix and Erebus, C, Bima and Hidimbi, or D, Glooskap and Mulsumis. You don't have to. You can just say A, B, C, and D. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) We'll start with Laura this time. I will go with C, and I do not remember how to say those names, but they seemed right. (laughs) Okay. Ashlyn. Uh, I also would like to go with C. Pretty sure I know one is not the right one. That's all I've got. Okay. Marissa. (laughs) I'm going to guess A, simply because I recognize those names, and that's the only one. And I feel like the Necronomicon has to have something right somewhere. It was never meant for the world of the living. (laughs) And Jim. I don't remember the exact timeline, but yeah, I'm also going to join with Marissa and go with Tiamat and Marduk. 
Okay. And Marissa and Jem have it right. Yay! Tiamat and Marduk. They are the creator gods. Tiamat's not a thing. Tiamat's a thing? They're the creator gods in the Babylonian creation epic, which is the Enuma Elish. It was written in cuneiform, and it's on seven stone tablets and over 50,000 lines. No, that's not right. I must have written that down wrong, but that's because that's a lot of lines, and <laughs> depending on how big these tablets are. On, ta- on tablets. Also, how big are these tablets? <laughs> like, I don't know. I've never seen them. The other pairs are from different mythologies around the world. Like Nix and Erebus are Greek. Mm-hmm. And Bima and Hidimbi are, I believe, Hindu. And Glooskap and Mulsumis are, I believe, they might be Huron. Huh. It's a, yeah, it's a Turtle Island myth anyway. I always thought that Nixon was American, so he wasn't a legitimate president, is what you're saying. <laughs> oh my god, Jim. We're going to nix the Nixon question? <laughs> yeah. No Millhouse here. This is what it feels like when doves cry. All right, question three. In the Abrahamic religions that follow the seven-day creation myth, what was created on the fourth day? A. The sky. B. Light. C. Creatures that live in the sea and creatures that fly. Or D. The sun, the moon, and the stars. This is in which creation myth? This is the Abrahamic... This is the Bible. The Bible. The Bible. (laughs) The Holy Bible. The Bible. Next on my list, we'll start with Ashlyn. Mm, okay, light was first. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Whoops. <laughs> There's a gimme. Uh, the firmament, etc., which I was pretty sure means sky, is after that. It's got to be creatures. got to be creatures. So you're saying sea creatures? Yeah. Not sea creatures. Well, it is sea creatures. <laughs> but... <laughs> I, I swear creatures that fly. Yeah. All right, Marissa. I would like to answer as Eli Bosnick as Donald Trump. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> gonna create these fantastic orbs. You're gonna put them in the sky. One's gonna be bigger than the other, but everybody's gonna think we're the biggest one. It's tremendous. I'm going with the. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> that was scary. Good. <laughs> I have many talents. <laughs> what can I say except you're welcome? Jim? I'm also going with the lights in the sky. I thought that was day three, not day four, but I, mm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm going to go with the lights in the sky. I don't remember so, when the creatures. So D? Yeah, D. Okay. And Laura, bring us home. I'm also going with lights in the sky. All right. It seems so late to have lights in the sky. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But, but it was he spent a long time making the sky, and then he's just like, oh, yeah, and let's put some stuff on this rock. <laughs> then he yeah, rested. Okay. And then he rested. Exactly. So it's not full seven days of creation, right? The last day was a day of rest. Hey, everybody, come on. She? She rested? Am I hey. the only feminist here? <laughs> the one true <laughs> feminist? She's not really a woman. She's not really anything. Shut up. <laughs> Someone's going to cut that out and use it against you in the future, and I look forward to that day. <laughs> yep. The answer is D, the sun, the moon, and stars. Sweet. They were created on the fourth day. The sky was on day two. Light was on day one. And creatures mm-hmm. of the sea and fly and creatures of the air were on day five. Yep. They were last before humans. Plants were before that, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. They're... 
were were plants before the sun? I didn't write the rest of them down, and I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember. I remember the order was uh, was extremely weird. And I could yeah. probably put them in the right order if I saw them all, but um, no, nope, not yeah. this. So far, I am enjoying riding Marissa's coattails on <laughs> because she's given me all all the answers. <laughs> she gets to go first on the next question. So. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm just starting with the next person down on my list, and I put everybody in the same list in the same order. So, question four: The Voluspa in the Poetic Edda tells the story of the creation of the world and its eventual end and rebirth. The Volva or Cirist tells the prophecy to which of these famous Nordic gods: A. Odin, B. Thor, C. Helgi, or D. Loki? Marissa? Oh, shit. <laughs> I should pay attention to the Minnesota people more. <laughs> the Voluspa is the part of the Poetic Edda that I study the most. I am completely in the dark about this one because I don't even watch Marvel movies. So I'll go with <laughs> Odin because he's older, I think. I don't know. Okay. Jim? It's either C or D. I feel I feel like it was actually Loki. Loki, Loki. The other one is tempting because I don't remember a lot about that god, but I'm going to go with Loki. Okay, Laura? I haven't the faintest idea, but I'm going with Helgi because I don't know that one. Okay, and Ashlyn? I'm going to say Odin. I got oh, right. The Volva seem like a reasonable people. Got Both it. Marissa and Ashlyn got it right. Wow! Really? Hooray! I was sure the... it was not Odin. Huh. <laughs> no. Odin drinks the, the mead and he goes to visit the Volva. And that's when he hangs himself in the tree, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. I read American Gods. (laughs) Bonus point, if you know what the vulva is named after. This isn't a question on the quiz. I'll just give you an extra bonus Nope. (laughs) Spelled differently. Worth a shot. Yeah, totally. How is it spelled? V-O-L-V-A. Well, I mean, if you're transliterating it into the... Yes. Our alphabet. Yes. V-O- yes. Yes. With an O. I don't know how to spell it in any other language, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, it is with an O. Okay. I assume that was the letter in the question. Staff? Yes. Dwarves? Yes, it, no. Volcanoes? Yes, Ashlyn. No. It is a, it's a cirrus. It's a human-ish woman. And Ashlyn is right. They're named after the staff. And do you know what the staff is made out of? I nope. thought it was just wood. Is it it's you? a horse penis. Oh, boy. Okay. Vulva means horse penis. <laughs> Nobody gets any points I, for that. I, 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 I'm just seeing that, that Palpatine meme. I run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I asked. Rude that I don't get a point for knowing it was a staff. <laughs> well, tough. <laughs> question five, my final question, because it's going to be a long night if we all go ten. In the Ugandan myth... Kintu was the first person on Earth who wandered the plains of Uganda alone with only this animal for companionship and food. A. A sheep. B. A goat. C. A cow. Or D. A giraffe. And we'll start back up with Jim. I want to say goat because they're pretty versatile, but that also seems obvious. Giraffe seems like a really weird companion animal. I don't know, they're, they're pretty cool, but it also seems like what somebody would just assume about Africa. It's not a zebra, I guess. People might assume that. I'm going to go with goat. Goat. All I'm not right. confident on this one. Laura. I'm going with cow, because you said for food and companionship. 
All right. Are you saying Ashlyn. goats aren't companionable? You've goat, met goats. <laughs> it goes sheep, goat, cow, giraffe. Oh, giraffe. Last time I go. saw a goat, it tried to eat our youngest. <laughs> oh, no, she yeah. probably deserved it. <laughs> yeah, she picture. probably did. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to say cow. Okay. And Marissa. In the words of my friend Jules, are you having a giraffe? <laughs> well, your friend might be, but Kintu did not. It was mm. cow. Worth Yay. a shot. <laughs> yep. Kintu survives on milk and cow dung. I don't want to know how. Oh my. <laughs> before being judged yep. Before being judged worthy of admission to the sky by the god Gagulu. I've heard of burning cow dung as fuel, so Yes. Yeah. And I totally. mean that's certainly one way to process otherwise insoluble fiber. Yep. And hey, it's a creation myth. So our answers, Jem has three points out of five, Laura has two, Ashlyn has three, and Marissa has three. So this has decided nothing. Yay. <laughs> Yay, it's the first quiz. Thank you all. I love creation myths. They're always a little weird. And they tell you so much about the people who came up with them and how they viewed the world. And I find them really fascinating. And I'm going to have plenty more quizzes about them in the future because, well, they're fun to make. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Lauren. Right. Thank you. Uganda? Cool. Where is that? Africa. Oh, boy! Like Lion King! Two by two, and now it's time to go. Our past have been revealed, so let's start the show. Okay, up next we have Ashlyn's quiz. Yay! Oh, shit, I, I actually have... have to do this one. <laughs> I've decided to horn in on Laura's territory and do a quiz all about fall foods. Yay! Ooh, awesome! How many questions do you have? I only have five. Question one. Which of these medieval spice blends are closest to what we would now recognize as pumpkin spice? Is it A, poudre fort, which means strong powder, poudre douce, which means soft powder, poudre rouge, which means red powder, or poudre courageux, which means courageous powder? <laughs> Wow. I'd like a poudre courageux latte, please. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with Marissa. I'm going to go with Courageous Powder just because that's the name of my new medieval ska band. So. <laughs> <laughs> courageous Powder. Lauren. I had some problem with Courageous Powder back in the day. <laughs> Peruvian marching powder, the devil's dandruff. I'm going to go with Poudre Deuce. Jim. I'm going to go with Poudre Rouge. And Laura. I'm also going to go with Poudre Deuce. That is because you are correct. And so I don't know what red powder or courageous powder are. I made them up. <laughs> but, uh, Poudre Deuce is quite similar to pumpkin spice. There's a lot more pepper in it, but it's also got like cinnamon and other things that you can throw in there. And it was kept around to put in sweet things mostly and also delicious cookies, whatnot. Poudre Far is very similar, except that it's like 90% pepper and a little bit of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I assumed. I assumed that like Poudre Far was going to be basically black pepper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I had a bit of a leg up on that one. Yeah. Seeing as we have Pujadus in the cupboard. I can never remember <laughs> which one is which without looking it up either, so maybe you could. Number two. One of Jem's favorite things, cranberries. Mm-hmm. They are part of a large genus of shrubs. What other berries are in this same family? Is it lingonberry, blueberry, bilberry, or huckleberry? And let's start with Lauren. Oh, crap. Let's go with lingonberry. And Jim. I believe lingonberry is correct. Laura? I also want to say lingonberry, although part of me is like, oh, no, maybe it's actually bilberry. Like, But part of me, I know, is I want to say lingonberry because it's used in a similar function as cranberry sauce, but I'm still going to go with it. Okay. And Marissa? I'm probably wrong, but I never thought I'd get to use this in context. I'm your huckleberry. (laughs) (laughs) Shockingly, all of you are correct, because all of these things are in the same (laughs) place. They're all vaccinium species. Excellent. Did you just have a a quiz question with all right answers? Yeah. You're too kind. I didn't want to put all of the above because I knew all of you would be like, yeah, they're probably all the same. So surprise, you all get a question right. Yay! That was fun. I like that. Well, and now I want to sing the Bilberry Baggins song by Leonard Nimoy. Bilberry Baggins. Greatest little hobbit of them all. (laughs) Bravest little hobbit of them all. Question three. What year did Tofurky first appear? <sighs> Question for all of our vegetarians. <laughs> Was it 2005, 1995, 1985, or 1965? Jem first. Well, my guess was going to be in the 1970s. So <laughs> 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 very rudely, you did not provide that as- <laughs> An answer, so I'm gonna go right with over it. <laughs> 1985. Do you and Laura's next? To be honest, I 1965. Have no idea, okay, Marissa. Well, since it was my birthday a few days ago and I was born in 1985, I'm going with that one. Okay, it's as good a reason as any. Yeah. Lauren, I'm not going to do the spread because I know it wasn't the last one. I've never eaten tofurkey. So let's go 85. Uh, shockingly, to make up for the last question, you're all incorrect. Yay! Tofurky was not introduced until 1995. Oh, wow. Mm. Oh, I forgot the 90s were on there. Damn it. That's that's honestly interesting. I think I must be thinking of a different product or something then, because I was listening to, it was probably Gastropod, and I swear they talked about, like, it was much earlier than expected, but it might have been, like, a precursor product or something. Yeah, interesting. Because I like I I am honestly surprised at that. I was certain that it was earlier than expected, not later. Okay, I just looked this up today. <laughs> Tofurkey makes a completely fine vegetarian roast turkey stuffed product for yeah. the holidays. Completely fine. Yeah, like that's for a long time. That was as good as you were going to get when you wanted yep. a, a meat analog. Yep. <laughs> well, and poultry is tough to do and if you want something that fills oh, that's, that's the why place, you have to base it i knew you were gonna do that and i was trying to talk and you just <laughs> did it anyway <laughs> we're on different floors of the house and he still can't help himself <laughs> anyway doesn't matter you trampled on it on we go 
Question four. More numbers. There are at least how many known cultivars or varieties of apples? Ooh. 2,500, 5,000, 7,500, or 10,000? Number four, we are starting with Laura. Oh. This is, again, see, I listen to a lot of gastropod and I like it, but I retain almost nothing from it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And I want to go back, but I don't have time to listen to all of them. But I just, uh, so they did good shows on apples. I'm going to say 7,500. Okay. Did you listen to the most recent episode of Gastropod? Is that the aliens one? Yeah. No, I haven't yet. No, it's on my list. Is it? Becky Chambers on to talk about how her awesome world building and it's so good. (laughs) That's That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, I love that show. Oh, that's the best. Marissa is up next. How many varieties of apples do you think there are? I feel like the high number is too obvious. So I'll go with 5,000 because reasons. Okay. (laughs) I appreciate those reasons. Lauren, how many apples do you know about? Infinity. Is there infinity (laughs) apple? No. Infinite apples and infinite combinations. I mean, you could choose to go for option E, but that's a bold choice. Considering it's not on your sheet, that wouldn't be optimal. <laughs> well, about taking a stand. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go where no one else would boldly go. I'm going to go for the for D. Was it ten thousand? Okay. I know 10, I'm wrong. I don't. Apples. Yeah, ten thousand maniacs, ten thousand apples. Jim, do you want to take twenty five hundred just to complete the spread, or you said at least. Yeah. Oh no! I feel like I should select twenty five hundred just to rules lawyer you into giving me a point. <laughs> no matter what, <laughs> this is yeah, not this prices is right. right. <laughs> Unless the actual answer is like one thousand, <laughs> I would that would be very mean. Twenty five hundred and one is not a possible yeah. choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll 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 take a. <laughs> Hey <laughs> for Apple. Whatever. I like I, th- I think the answer was actually 7500 but I don't care. There are in fact at least 7500 kinds of apples. But I took it. Laura, Laura is kicking butt on this quiz. This is my profession. Yeah. <laughs> I put it right directly in her wheelhouse. All right, here's a chemistry question for you to finish off my quiz. Boo. Beets are delicious. Yes. However, some people think they taste like dirt. There's a compound in beets called geosmin. It's a sesquiterpene, which I don't know what it means, but that's a great word. Sesquiterpene. (laughs) Beets contain between 10 and 27 milligrams per kilogram of beet of this geosmin. So not a ton, but it's, it's there. And it depends on what variety of beet you get, how much of this dirt flavor it has. So apparently chaga beets are very high, and Detroit dark red, which are the kinds that I grew in my garden, are very low. Hmm. Anyway, okay. here's some beet facts. What is the amount of geosmin a human nose can detect in, I believe, just in the air? I only have three options here. Is it five parts per million? Five parts per billion? Or five parts per trillion. This is the dirt compound that's in beets. How sensitive is a human nose to that smell? And we're going to start with Marissa. I'll go with the million just because I feel like our noses kind of suck. Okay. So I'll go with the lowest number. 
Lauren. Yeah, I'll go with million. Jim. We're, we're talking short count million, like American million, not European Jim. million. No, don't ask me these questions. (laughs) No, good lord. Okay, like I mean, for million, everybody has the same million. I I misspoke. Yeah, billion. Billion. Yes. Yes. I'm just joking. Obviously, you mean the American one. Everybody uses the American one now, except uh, the French. Answer the question, Jen. Um, Okay. (laughs) Some old English people. Jesus Christ! You know the the kind of people. He was in my quiz. Queen is dead. Oh. Marissa makes a compelling point. The human <laughs> sensory system is total hot garbage, complete trash. Mm-hmm. We can smell that. I mean, our our noses suck, but uh, have you seen our eyes? They they are very bad. <laughs> let's let's say trillion anyway, just for fun. Okay, that leaves Laura. Is this stuff dangerous to us at high amounts? I have no idea. I did not encounter that information. Is okay. That is a good question. I'm going to go with billion. Okay. It is, in fact, extremely detectable by the human nose. It can be detected up to five parts per trillion. Wow. Oh! Wow! Between 10 and 27 milligrams per kilogram of beet. So that's like a lot. <laughs> wow. Anyway, I love beets is the point of this quiz. Jim got one point, Laura got three points, Marissa got one point, and Lauren got two points. I got the default! (laughs) Well, we all have one quiz where we get zeros, so... Yeah. It's okay, we average these out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on quickly to Laura. All right. My quiz is all about clocks and timekeeping. Nice. Yeah, something totally different. I went outside my wheelhouse because no, there was still a food quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You you had me covered there, Ashlyn. And I also couldn't think of things that I hadn't already talked about. So I went with something totally different. All right. How many questions do you have? I think it's six. Okay. If I'm wrong, we'll figure it out. All I'm doing is is coloring in the other cells. So it's not a big deal. Okay. Humans have been finding ways to track time for millennia at this point. And we've gone through a lot of different types of technology. So our our very first types of timekeeping devices were monuments of some kinds that could track the movements of the sun or, or the seasons. Think of things like Stonehenge and other types of buildings and, and such around the world. Then over time, humans... And the reason that we had these big immovable things is because the idea of small periods of time wasn't really useful in a lot of people's day-to-day lives. And so they looked more at the seasons for growing or hunting or whatever it happened to be. But over time, humans decided that we wanted to be able to track time in smaller and smaller units. And as such, we had to develop different types of timekeeping. So Very briefly, some of the first more specific timekeeping devices were things like sundials, where the the shadow of the sun is helps or indicates the time on a on a monument on the ground. And a very, very common type was the water clock. So the water Mm. clock 
actually, there's lots of different accounts because like many things, it actually developed in different places at similar times and then was also transported from one place to another, like the technology was taken. But we think that the earliest evidence of that was sometime around 5000 BCE. And they remained one of the most accurate timekeeping pieces for several thousand years. So this is actually just a bonus point. Though there is lots of evidence of water clocks being used in different civilizations around the world, where did the first water clock develop, like the earliest one that we have on record? And I'll just, so you can just shout some, well, not shout something out. I'll go in order here. So we'll start with Marissa. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Guesses are fine. <laughs> Sumeria. <laughs> okay. Lauren. Egypt. Okay. Jem. India. Okay. Ashlyn. Mm, I also think Egypt. Well, good. Excellent guesses. All of these places did have ancient water clocks, but it was China that where oh, we found really? the oldest one. That was my yep. original guess, and I changed it. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, all we have ancient evidence of water clocks in all the civilizations that you mentioned. So excellent thinking, everybody. Okay, on to my <laughs> real questions here. No bonus points yet. We talked about sundials. We talked about water clocks. The first mechanical clock which was the precursor to the pendulum and spring clocks and so on and so forth, was developed in Europe and was a marvel of timekeeping technology. What was the primary driving force behind this invention? Was it A, industrialization, B, the variable flow rates of water, C, Catholic prayer times, D, advances in engineering science. And we will start with Lauren this time. Catholic pair times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was an R in the word. There's two R's in the word prayer, and I only pronounced one of them. So <laughs> Catholic okay. prayer times. Okay. Jem. Yeah, I'm also going to say Catholic prayer times. Got to make it to Matins. I was thinking of <laughs> Matins, too. Ashlyn. Catholic prayer times. Okay, and Marissa. I feel like if there's any people who are going to be rigid and paltry about this kind of shit, <laughs> it's going to be the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're you're all, all right, but you're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but do we get the points? <laughs> Well, we can we can rules lawyer this, but let me go through things. So Catholic prayer times, the Catholics really liked to be on time for prayers. They they liked to be precise about this. So this was very important in European society. The only clocks available at the time, or the most reliable clocks available at the time, were water clocks, which mainly developed in places where it's above freezing most of the time. And so when water clocks came to Europe, the water froze and didn't flow very well. And it was very hard to have accurate timekeeping for prayers and such. And so a new way to tell time was required so that in the middle of a frigid winter, people can still go to mass. <laughs> so that, from my readings... It was the fact that water clocks didn't work 
is one of the biggest reasons that the mechanical clock was developed and why it developed in Europe. But prayer times were one of the big reasons that people wanted that precision timing. Did they work on boats? Water clocks? Yeah. Doubt it. I think they would slosh all over the place. Yeah, I'm wondering, because, like, I don't know, boats have been a big deal throughout history. I'm, but like, so isn't, isn't a boat a water said. clock? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they had other things for boats. I'm on a boat! I am not a timekeeping specialist after this quiz. I just thought it was an right. interesting topic, Actually, so don't ask hilarious. me too many questions. What's we, that? We asked Dave if he wanted to come on this show, and he has literally taken, like, timekeeping throughout history at Penzik, I think twice because he liked the yeah. class so much, he would have aced this quiz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, too bad for him. <laughs> okay. Sorry, continue. Next question. So did we get the points? I mean, no, I think okay. you will... I, my, it wasn't the right answer that I put from my okay. readings, but I think your your reasoning was all very good. So, okay. what year did the first mechanical clock emerge in Europe? Oh, so, no. A, <laughs> 1078, B, 1412, C, 1283, D, 1357. And I started with Lauren last time. So, Jem goes first. I'm going to go with the 14th century. So 1312? Is that what you said? 1357. 1357. 1357. Ashlyn. That is also the year I was thinking. Okay. Marissa. 1412 sounds good to me. (laughs) And Lauren. 1283. All right. And Lauren gets the point on this one. Yay! But bonus points. If anyone can tell me the country that it it was located in. Austria. Ooh, I'm going to say France. Spain. Netherlands. Ooh, good guesses. But it was in Dunstable Priory in Bedfordshire, England, of all places. No way. They're not allowed to cool inventions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who did they steal it from? Tell us. (laughs) And this is like, honestly, I did. I tried to search this a lot to make sure this wasn't like European washing of technology. But no, it was really (laughs) like, this is truly a European thing. Other parts of the world were still using water clocks or other other types of things. But Europe made the first mechanical clock, which then became the pendulum clock in a couple of hundred years after that. So clock building, including in intricate clock towers flourished throughout Europe during the 14th and 15th centuries. And these clocks often included parts that showed the movement of the sun and the moon, as well as biblical creatures as decorations. And some of these clock towers are still standing. Very cool. Awesome. Okay. Next question. The invention of the mechanical clock brought about many changes to European life, including this important change affecting day-to-day life. A. Reduced reliance on sunlight hours. B. Precise prayer times. C. Longer working hours in factories. D. Increased sophistication of military maneuvers. Jem started last time, so it's Ashlyn. Sorry. Okay, I'm going to go with capitalism. Longer working hours. (laughs) Capitalism! All right, Marissa. I'll diverge from the... From the popular choice this time, just because I've read 
battle diaries of people who didn't know what time it was. And I feel like the military really wanted to be on that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Lauren. All of the above? (laughs) You got to pick one. (laughs) I'll I'll go military as well, because I already got screwed out of the Catholic prayer times. (laughs) This will be the Catholic prayer time one. (laughs) Yeah. No, that would be that, that, that. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I like your reasoning. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jem. I think it is also military, although, like, once we get to handheld timepieces, that is, that's really a, a killer app. But I think even carting around a, a grandpa clock is, is still gonna, gonna get you a lot of mileage. So I'm gonna say military. Okay. Sorry, guys. No, no points on this one. So it was reduced reliance on the sunlight hours for guiding their day. Hmm. So prior to this, people generally followed the sun's movements as a guide to their day. And daytime was divided into temporal hours where the sunlight hours were divided into 12. So temporal hours could range from 32 to 82 minutes long, depending on the season. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. mechanical clock ushered in the equinoctial hour, which is 1 24th of a full day night cycle. What? And so then their days and their movements and how long things took became much more standardized, which then allowed for precise prayer times, longer working hours, and eventually military sophistication. So some accounts from that time note that the bells from the clock towers of churches began to rule everyday life, kind of like an alarm clock. And where, Mm. so yeah, that was a big change for people in the Middle Mm. Ages. Very cool. Next question. Hours of alternate length have been trialed by different societies over several millennia, including decimal time, where the day is divided into 10 hours of 100 minutes each, with 100 seconds in each minute. True or false? France officially adopted decimal time for 16 months in the late 18th century. And we're going to start with Marissa. I feel like the French would be like, yeah, we're going to change from everybody else and just do something that nobody else is doing. Like, I feel like that's such a French thing. <laughs> so you're for true. Sure. <laughs> okay. Lauren. It was part of the Napoleonic calendar stuff, wasn't it? So yeah, I say yes. Okay. Jem. Absolutely. And Ashlyn. I'm going to follow the pack and say yes, because I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> so were they. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Points for everybody. Yay! Um, from this, nine... This is a wild or, time to read about. <laughs> this, I, so this is brand new information to me. I had not heard of it. And I was just like, what the... So from 1793, late 1793 until mid-1795... France officially adopted decimal time. They had recently had a revolution and converted to metric time. And so they wanted everything to be metric. So decimal time makes a lot more sense if you want everything to be metric. But of course, them being the only country to do that and Europe being relatively small and lots and travel, it made it really difficult. And that was the one metric thing that just really didn't take off. And so after... In 1795, the the government just kind of gave up on decimal time. One of my favorite books growing up and still is The Count of Monte Cristo. And I didn't understand 
when they were saying these weird months I had never heard of. And that's what <laughs> got me looking into the metric calendar and all that sort of stuff. And it was really cool. I thought yeah. when you started talking about decimal time that I might have to admit that I briefly had my computer set to swatch internet time <laughs> in uh -huh. the late night. Jim Newman. <laughs> oh, hon. I love you still. It's okay. We'll get through this. I got a new, like, I my work issued me a new laptop, and I'm not allowed to change it to 24-hour time. What? So oh. after afternoon it's still it goes back to one Mad. and it's messing me right up <laughs> i'm sorry that you have to go through that lauren <laughs> <laughs> my diamond shoes are too tight laura <laughs> i know boy what a hardship <laughs> a lot of a lot of my classmates are currently going through the transition because we are starting clerkship next week so a bunch of them have transitioned their clocks to 24 hour time and Aww. they're all just like whining about having to subtract 12 or add 12 and try to figure out what time it is and i'm like ah i did this <laughs> back in 2001 <laughs> i did it before it was cool <laughs> okay two more questions Timepieces first became portable and wearable around the turn of the 16th century and spread widely through Europe thanks to the invention of spring-driven clockworks versus the pendulum-driven mechanical model. Which of the following was not a common feature of the first generations of these watches? So think, think like pocket watch type things. A. A bell to sound the hour. B. A calendar of months. C. Jewels and embellishments. D, a minute hand. And is it Marissa? I think Marissa's first. Minute hand sounds good to me. <laughs> okay, Lauren. I'll go with minute hand. Okay, Jem. Seeing as how I, I was extremely disappointed to discover that every watch I buy from here on out will need not only a minute, but a second hand, and therefore I can't have a slow watch, I'm going to go with minute hand. Okay, Ashlyn. Okay, I agree with everyone else. Okay. Well done, everybody. Points for all. Yay! And These slow watches for all. <laughs> no, the, the timepieces were reasonably accurate for hours, but the spring mechanism was basically useless for smaller periods of time. So it was, they just didn't bother doing minute hands because they wouldn't have been useful. And tracking things like calendar months or movements of the moon was still more important to society as well. Many of them did have bells in them and would chime just like a clock tower on the hour. And they were often jewelry pieces. So very stylish as well. Just to be clear, when I say slow watch, I'm, I'm not saying your watch is slow. I'm talking about a, a specific type of watch that only yes. has one hand. <laughs> Yes, I remember that, but it is not the case for that, per se. Anyway. I had one. <laughs> of course I did. Apparently, oh, I yeah. need to be able to figure out what somebody's heart rate is and respiratory rate is, and they want it per minute, not per hour, so. <laughs> Just imagining being in the ER, like, oh, hold on, <laughs> got 37 <laughs> more minutes before I can give you my answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that Exactly. Ta-da! Doctor, the patient's dead. Oh, well. Not another one. Oh. One we go. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it looks like it was shock, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my final question. Dun-da-da-da! Wristwatches became popular in the 19th century. 
Who would you be most likely to see wearing one? A, a train conductor. B, a fashionable lady. C, an astronomer. D, a military general. And we're going to go with Lauren first. A fashionable woman. Okay. Jim. For no particular reason I can articulate, I'm going to say an astronomer. All right. Ashlyn. I am torn between conductor and military guy. Train conductor. Okay. And Marissa. I feel like since train schedules were kind of why we got time zones, mm-hmm. that would be a good answer for wristwatch as well. <laughs> you leave the Pennsylvania station about a quarter to four. Read a magazine and then you're in Baltimore. Hey, oh, I like I like a bit more of a spread on this one, but Lauren takes it. Wristwatches were quite popular, but they were primarily seen as jewelry, and they were far too feminine for men. Men would use pocket watches. Oh. However, at the end of the 19th century, military men started to adopt the trend of wristwatches during military events like the Boer War. Although their versions of wristwatches were significantly more crude than the, the timepieces that women wore. So basically, they would take their pocket watches and somehow just attach them to leather straps and off they went. So it wasn't until the early 20th century that actual wristwatches for men were being produced. Laura, are you trying to suggest that women can't be astronomers? (laughs) Jim? (laughs) When she throws you out, you can't have our couch after that question. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. That's my quiz. Thanks for taking it. Excellent quiz. Thanks for making it. Jim, Ashlyn, and Marissa all got two questions right, and I got four. (laughs) You did awesome. Well done. (laughs) Next up, we have our special guest, Marissa. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) But these are not multiple choice. That's just fine. Essay questions are fun. How many many questions do you have? Sorry. I have seven with Two, two of them are bonus questions related to one of these questions, and they're just they're more fun than the first five. <laughs> All right. So, has anyone taken anthropology? Yes. Okay, so this might not be as hard as it would be because most people have not. I have mm-hmm. a degree in anthropology, and I tried to make this some of the more basic anthropology questions, but... Once again, we generally don't get this in high school in America, so who knows? So welcome to Anthropology 101 with Dr. Rissy McCool. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. Question number one. (laughs) What is the term for a piece of text where an anthropologist writes up a report of living amongst an unfamiliar group of people or culture, participating in their customs and rituals as one of the group in which they're studying? Lauren? Ooh. Shit, it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> ethnography. Jim? I, don't, I, I believe Lo- Lauren said ethnography, and that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
should we should we perhaps structure this such that the first person to shout it out gets the point and you and you say whether it's right or wrong and if it's wrong we can keep we can keep trying kind of that Japanese sounds style. good to me okay That's a, all right so yes the answer is ethnography okay <laughs> so lauren lauren gets the point oh i would have gotten it so much faster i'm sorry <laughs> uh, yeah I'm okay not. question number two one of the most famous ethnographies was an unpublished manuscript by Franz Boas about a First Nations tribe on Vancouver Island with whom he conducted 45 years of fieldwork and research between the years of 1885 and 1930. Name wow. that tribe. Haida? Iroquois. Mm. No, Squamish. That's, not, that's, the right, that's the wrong region. <laughs> Oh, this is Vancouver Island, Pacific Northwest. Oh! Coast Salish? No, no, maybe it is. I don't know. No. I feel like I'm. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> We're so sorry, Indigenous listeners. <laughs> We're not from the West Coast. Yeah, in like various land acknowledgments, and I got nothing left. Yeah. Okay. Everything I, only, I was going to try I was has already been yelled. I only know this because I did my senior thesis on them. The correct answer is the Kwakiutl. Ooh. Yes, Would not have are, guessed that. They are a very fascinating group of people. And where are their lands? I mean, Pacific Northwest, but... Vancouver Island. Okay. Just on the island? As far as I know. Okay. So this one should be a little easier to at least get a few points... So there are four main areas of anthropology into which the field is generally divided. Can you name one or more of them? Cultural anthropology. One. Linguistic. Ooh, good. That's the kind I know. <laughs> Jeremy, you got anything? Nope. Physical. Yes. Or archaeological would also be acceptable. Oh, okay. That is three. There's one more. Yeah, should we give Ashwin two points for that? Because she yeah. shouted out too. There's one more that's a little more sciency, isn't the word, but a little more traditionally associated with science. Forensic. Uh, Close. What What was that, Ashlyn? I said forensic, but it's often just considered a like subcategory of physical. Biological. Know. You got it. <laughs> oh. Seriously? Yes. Oh, what? Cool. They were just separating them. Is that the one where they lick bones? That's no. just archaeology. <laughs> archaeology, physical anthropology, they all have some part in the bones. <laughs> <laughs> Question number four. In linguistic anthropology, one of the yes. key terms that is the basis of the subfield is a process by which words or phrases from other languages become part of another culture's lexicon. For example, mm. déjà vu is a French phrase that has become an English phrase in which there's a general understood cultural meaning. What is this process called? And that just goes right out of my head. <laughs> That's not uh, a calc, is it? No. Calc is something else. Appropriation? <laughs> Long well, it's like for. oral words, yeah. It is a form of appropriation, yes. Oh. I don't know a term for it. Oh, I feel like I've known this word, but I don't know. It's completely out of my head. I've talked about this before. <laughs> It's okay, I got two points in the last question. <laughs> Final guess, anybody? Nope. No. The process is called 
linguistic diffusion. Oh my god, I can never show my face on Twitter again. <laughs> Lauren, have you seen what's on Twitter? You're fine. Like <laughs> I don't think you know how often I'm on Twitter, Laura. I I know. <laughs> Lauren, is, is that profile picture your face? <laughs> Me? Where? Oh, you said you can never show your face. How often do you show your face on Twitter? <laughs> it is my wow, face on Twitter. Um, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That was from Christmas 19. It was Christmas 2019 as we were driving to Dave's mother's house down the middle of Portage Avenue at night. That was me taking a picture in the back seat of the car. Oh, good. And I, I liked how the lighting the worked. wrong profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Oh, I think that's still my Twitter profile picture. It is. Yep. Yep. Me being all moody on Twitter. Yep. Okay. Question. Question (laughs) number five. Found in 1974, arguably the most famous fossil discovery from the Great Rift Valley in Ethiopia, was one of the human ancestor known as Lucy. Discovered by Donald Johansson and Tom Gray, they were able to exhume nearly 40% of a complete hominid skeleton. But why is she named Lucy? (sighs) Because of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because when men discover things, so what do they do? They get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and when they got drunk and had a little party, that was a certain song that was playing. Therefore, her name is Lucy. <laughs> oh, John Lennon ruined something again. <laughs> <laughs> so two bonus questions about the Kwakiutl. This will be fun. Franz Boas' study of the Kwakiutl detailed a ritual in which the tribe got together, each of them bringing something for everybody else, and where gifts were exchanged and marriages were proposed. What was this called? Potlatch? Yeah, I was going to say potlatch. (laughs) That is correct. Awesome. And if if anybody gets this one, I will be very impressed. (laughs) (laughs) The Kwakiutl at the time of Boas's study were a matrilineal society in which wealth must pass from father to daughter to husband. But like mm. any society, there were loopholes. Of course, if they didn't have a daughter, there's a loophole there. But what if the chief did not have any children to whom to give to his inheritance? Went to his sister's kids or the chief's sister's kids. No, it's much weirder than that. <laughs> Okay, because that one makes sense to me. There would be some kind of a competition among like the strong female people in the community and whoever kind of came out on top would then get it. That is weird. Whoever put a conch shell on top of a rock. Communism? Everybody got to pick something? Oh, yeah. Like society would just like disperse for a little while. It's like when your D&D party dies and you got to loot the body and split up the stuff. Hi, KO'd. (laughs) <laughs> I will give you a hint. If the chief only had a son, they would dress up half of one of his sons as a daughter. And then another person would marry that half of the quote unquote daughter. And then the marriage would immediately be dissolved once the inheritance was passed through. So if they have no kids, what do you think happened? They adopted a kid for five minutes. No, the chief would He's dress dead. up. Oh, his, oh. Oh. The chief would dress up his big toe. Oh my god! <laughs> that is wonderful. Marriage. Wow. 
And that's why I did my senior thesis on them. <laughs> that is, that is, that's creativity. <laughs> yes. Put it that way. <laughs> because as an in-the-closet trans person, I can't imagine why this kind of thing might have appealed to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny the things that twig it, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, That's thank you cool. for indulging me. <laughs> that was an excellent that was quiz. Was the best I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, Ashlyn got four points. I got three. And Laura got one. And Jem, I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But okay. it's your turn now, Jim. So, <laughs> we're in the home stretch, folks. Are we? Buckle up. Question one. A 55-year-old patient presents with sudden onset, dry <laughs> cough, and shortness of breath accompanied by chest pain. <laughs> <laughs> On exam, you notice that their right leg is swollen and warm. When you do vitals, you note a heart rate of 160 beats per minute and a respiratory rate of 24 breaths per minute. You notice normal breath sounds on the right, but you can't hear much at all on their left side. Their oxygen saturation is at 85% on room air, and their temperature is 37 degrees centigrade. That's 98.6, Marissa. You take a quick history and find that they have a 20-pack year smoking history and that they just returned from a trip to New Zealand. You take a chest x-ray, and it appears normal. Complete blood count is also normal. The only medication that they take is an oral contraceptive pill. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, anaphylactic shock secondary to an encounter with a venomous animal? B, pulmonary embolism secondary to a deep vein thrombosis? C, septic pneumonia secondary to cellulitis? Or D, chronic venous insufficiency and pulmonary edema secondary to congestive heart failure? And for all of these questions, please feel free to ask for as much clarification as you like. Ask for any other information you want about the case. And please remember that nothing I say in this segment or indeed on this podcast ever should be construed as medical advice. (laughs) Don't take medical advice from a podcast. Yeah, I'm going to say chronic venous insufficiency and edema. Okay. Laura. Pulmonary embolism. So C. No, sorry, B. B. I misread that. B. Ashlyn. I also think pulmonary embolism. Marissa. I know some of these words. I'll guess C, because lungs were brought up and pneumonia is related to the lungs, and there's my medical expertise. Okay, so Laura and Ashlyn got it. That's probably a pulmonary embolism. Pneumonia would typically present with a productive cough, usually accompanied by fever and elevated white blood cells on CBC, and will usually show up on a chest x-ray. Chronic venous insufficiency typically presents with bilateral, not unilateral, swelling and discoloration of the legs, which doesn't really fit with this presentation, and pulmonary edema usually has a wet cough that is worst when lying down. It also should show up on x-ray if you're good at looking for the... What is it? Curly beelines? I was stuck on the smoking in New Zealand. Mm, Well, Mm. I will get there. Anaphylactic shock is a form of distributive shock caused by an allergic reaction. It often presents with urticaria, colloquially known as hives, swelling of the tongue, lips, and upper airway, and wheezing on auscultation of the lung, among other signs. 
Pulmonary embolism, on the other hand, often presents with sudden dyspnea, that's shortness of breath, chest pain, a dry cough, tachypnea, so fast breathing, tachycardia, fast heart rate, and either crackles or decreased breath sounds. Pulmonary embolism is often caused by a deep vein thrombosis of the leg. So basically, you, you get a clot in a deep vein in your leg, and then that clot gets dislodged and travels into your lungs. That's what a pulmonary embolism is. So a deep vein thrombosis of the leg presents with calf or thigh pain and swelling and is common in cancer patients and in those who have recently been immobilized, had surgery, or taken a long flight. These risks are compounded in smokers and in people with high levels of estrogen, especially exogenous estrogen, like from an oral contraceptive pill. So, so here, here we have Laura and Ashlyn with points. You had a question, Laura? Yeah, so why, why is a 55-year-old taking an oral contraceptive pill? PCOS? Still, but I mean, at that age, it's going to be a it's going to be a bit different because you're looking mm -hmm. at menopause and that. And HRT, like hormone replacement therapy, is different than contraceptive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was, I missed the age at first. And so I went with my guess. But then I'm like, wait, 55. Oh, no, maybe he's trying to throw me. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that this person didn't get deprescribed like they should have. It could also be an extremely late menopause. I mean, 55 is is sort of the outside. I, th I think 40, 45 to 55 is the common range for on onset of menopause. I could be mistaken, but it's definitely on the outside. But it's it's possible that somebody could be taking a, an OCP at that point. But to be honest with you, it was originally 45, and then I changed the age and forgot <laughs> to adjust my stem. But good catch. Are we just doing your homework for you, Jim? Yeah. Bonus point. <laughs> <laughs> what should you do about this pulmonary embolism? Oh, shit. Teach them, teach them yoga so they can kiss their ass goodbye? Pray it away. Like, <laughs> blood uh, thinners. Blood thinners? Yeah, like, what's that one they use on house all the time? Heparin. Hey, I'll give Ashlyn the point. Oh! Yeah. I said blood thinners. You said, okay, well, I'll give it to Laura as well. But Ashlyn said heparin. Okay. <laughs> Unfractionated heparin is a good choice for anticoagulation in a lot of patients. It will depend. There are lots of contraindications. But yeah, uh, heparin, a blood thinner is a good choice. Often, what else should you do for this patient emergent, emergently? Anyone else have any guesses? Take her off of the damn contraceptives. <laughs> <laughs> so supplemental oxygen right away because an O2 saturation of, what did I say, 85%? 85 is air, low. That is extremely bad. People with like comp compensated COPD might be able to get that low, I think. But for, for most people, especially suddenly, like that's, that's an emergency. And also consider IV fluids and vasopressors if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. But yeah, we'll give uh, Ashlyn and Laura that bonus point as well. So, so uh, how two... many of these questions did you say you have, Jim? <laughs> Just five, plus the bonus points. So that's, what is that, four points for Ashlyn? Or sorry, two points for Ashlyn, two points for Laura so far? Yep, okay. that's where we are. We'll move on to question two. Four patients present to your clinic, all asking for antibiotics to treat their strep throat. Because you're a good antibiotic steward, and you don't want to give anyone diarrhea unnecessarily, you don't want to give someone antibiotics if they don't need them. Which of the following patients are most likely to have strep throat? A 16-year-old patient with a sore throat, a temperature of 
39 degrees centigrade, that's 102.2 Marissa, with swollen cervical lymph nodes and a productive cough, that's A, 16-year-old, B, a 20-year-old patient with a sore throat, a temperature of 37.5, that's 99.5 Fahrenheit, with swollen tonsils and no cough, C, a 52-year-old patient with a sore throat, a temperature of 37.9 C, that's 100.2 Fahrenheit, with tonsillar exudate and a dry cough, or D, a 13-year-old patient with a sore throat, a temperature of 38.5 C, that's 101.3, and swollen cervical lymph nodes and swollen tonsils with no cough. And we're going to start with Laura here. Oh, good Lord. So which of these four patients is most likely to actually have strep throat? I think it's either B or D. No. Oh, God. Oh, no. I'm glad I I did randomize this, but I I definitely am glad I started with Laura, the person who had strep throat all the time. I was just going to say I had strep throat so often as a kid. It happened all the time. And but I was a kid. I don't remember. (laughs) I know my throat was really sore. There's probably swollen tonsils. So what does that rule out here? I don't remember coughing, really. Strep throat. No, some kind of virus. What's going around? Asian flu. Good one. Okay, I'm going to go with D. Okay. Ashlyn. I also had strep throat as a kid, and I do not think there was coughing. And I think children are more likely to get it, so I'm also going with D. Okay. Marissa. That was going to be my guess, too. Cool. Lauren. Let's make it a straight flush. I mean, there's nothing straight that I can do. <laughs> but yeah, everybody Touché. for D. Sweet. You're all correct. The answer is Yay! a 13-year-old with a temperature of 38.5, swollen lymph nodes and tonsils and no cough. The center score criteria were developed to aid clinicians in recognizing strep pharyngitis or strep throat, a condition caused by an infection with group A streptococcus. Patients are considered more likely to have strep throat if they are between 3 and 14 years old, if their temperature is above 38 degrees C, that's 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, if they have swollen anterior cervical lymph nodes, and if they have either swollen tonsils or visible tonsillar exudate. That's like like white pussy stuff on their on their tonsils. I was going to say, which one has the has the white bits on their yeah. tonsils? Yeah, so fifty two. That was the one that or tonsillar exudate. Those that's where I got messed up because, like, yeah, like tonsils they weren't just sore. There was like they were gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and patients are considered less likely to have strep throat if they are forty five or older, or if they have a cough. So well reasoned, everybody. For the bonus point. What is the appropriate treatment for strep pharyngitis for most patients? Penicillin. Time? <laughs> Amoxicillin. That's what I always <laughs> took. I don't so, know what it is anymore. I will, I will give it to Laura. Oral amoxicillin <laughs> is usually what we choose now. You can often get away with penicillin 
like a simple penicillin, amoxicillin is is also a beta-lactam. It's a pen, pel, penicillin-alike. There is some resistance though, so usually you wouldn't go with simple penicillin. But Laura, Laura said both penicillin and amoxicillin, so we'll give her the, the bonus point there. Okay. <laughs> Banana medicine. <laughs> yep. Kill Question. me if I ever take it again. <laughs> Question three. A 23-year-old patient presents with a facial rash that's most prominent on their cheeks and the bridge of their nose, but spares their forehead and the area beneath their nose. They tell you that they've had it off and on for months, and it tends to come out worse after they've been in the sun. So at first they'd mistaken it for a sunburn. On physical exam, you note small red dots on their hands along the nail folds. On history, they mention that they've been having joint aches lately. It's probably arthritis, though, they tell you. My mom got that around my age. They also mention that this morning they noticed that their pee was darker than usual. You run some blood work and consult nephrology about the urine. Blood work comes back with elevated ANA and decreased C3 and C4. And the nephrologist on call tells you that your patient has developed a proliferative glomerulonephritis. What is the most okay. likely diagnosis? A. Osteosarcoma with perineoplastic syndrome. B. Scleroderma. C. Polymorphous light eruption, a form of sun allergy. Or D. Systemic lupus erythematosus. It's never lupus. And we're going to start with Ashlyn. D. Ashlyn goes with lupus. Marissa. C. I feel like sun allergy is a thing that would be random enough for this to happen because I know fuck all about medical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren. It's never lupus. Scleroderma. Okay. And Laura. Lupus. Go for the spread. <laughs> the only thing I understood from any of that was elevated ANA, and I know that that means autoimmune disease. So polymorphous light eruption is technically an autoimmune disease as well. Ah. I finally had a case of lupus. Because this <laughs> is indeed systemic lupus erythematosus. That was a um, momentous house episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, or just lupus, is a chronic systemic autoimmune disease characterized by the production of autoantibodies against the nucleus of your own cells. So, ANA is anti-nuclear antibody. Although anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies are actually more specific for lupus, <laughs> if I recall correctly, which I think I do. All right, so who got that like, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you and me, I think. I, I didn't. Think. I said scleroderma. I've not done my spiel. It's too long, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go for Go it. Ahead. Like other autoimmune conditions, it is more common in those assigned female at birth for reasons that are not fully understood. The classic finding here is the malar rash, a butterfly-shaped facial rash that spares the nasolabial folds alongside photosensitivity. The family history of a probable autoimmune disease with her mother's early onset arthritis is also suggestive, as is the capillary nail fold dilation, although that would also fit with dermatomyositis or scleroderma, which was one of the options. 
Arthritis in two or more joints is another lupus criterion, as is her kidney injury, either persistent elevated protein, which would suggest a non-proliferative glomerulonephritis, or red blood cell casts, which are diagnostic of a proliferative glomerulonephritis. Jen, there's so many words here none of our listeners are going to understand. <laughs> yeah. That's why I have that drop. <laughs> I know some of these words. <laughs> <laughs> there are 11 diagnostic criteria for lupus in all, along with some criteria that are merely suggestive, and you need at least four of them to make the diagnosis. Scleroderma is a condition that typically manifests with skin thickening, which might explain the capillary nail fold dilation, but basically nothing else. Polymorphous light eruption is another autoimmune skin condition that manifests with a rash after exposure to UV light, uh, such as sunlight. It occurs most often in the neck and arms, most often is raised and itchy or painful spots that appear red or pink on those with light skin and darker brown on those with darker skin colors. Osteosarcoma is a rare malignant bone tumor. Perineoplastic syndrome refers to a variable set of signs and symptoms that occur in those with malignancies caused by chemical signaling, either by the tumor cells or by the body's immune response to the tumor. While perineoplastic disease might explain a few of these symptoms, not very well, to be honest, it is uncommon both in bone cancers and in younger patients like our patient. So this is lupus, the disease of a thousand faces. Bonus point. What's the appropriate treatment for lupus? Ugh. Oh, 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 it's that medicine that everybody was <laughs> taking during COVID. What the, f oh, what's that called? Antibodies? It's not, it's the one before ivermectin came on. Oh, what's, damn it. <laughs> so there's a few things that it. you can try and get them, like the immune system to stop attacking you, but like, is the answer there is no really good way to treat it? There are actually good, good, fairly good treatments. There's, there's no cure. Steroids? So I'm going to give that to you, Lauren. Steroids are often used. Laura was trying to come up with hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Yeah, I was That's looking chloroquine. It. I couldn't remember the front of it. Oh, my brain got stuck on indomethacin and could not get out of it. And it was just... <laughs> <laughs> so hydroxychloroquine is recommended for all patients with lupus, and it, it is not a wonder drug, and it comes with its own package of side effects, but it, it greatly improves the symptoms. Other recommendations include photoprotection, so wearing sunscreen, hats, like that, regular exercise and smoking cessation. Other treatments vary based on symptom severity, with mild disease re responding fairly well to like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, or low-dose steroids like prednisone. Severe disease requires more intense immunosuppression, either with high-dose high steroids or often modulator drugs, which are extremely expensive. Very expensive. So... Good job, Ashlyn and Laura, and good job, Lauren, on the bonus point there. Question mm -hmm. four. A 21-year-old patient presents with a six-week history of feeling sick. When you prompt them for more details, they report they've been really tired and have had trouble focusing. Also, their tummy hurts, and they feel a little nauseated. They've also had to go to the bathroom more than usual. They have normal vitals with the exception of respiration rate, which is 28 breaths per minute. Though their blood pressure drops and their heart rate spikes when they stand up. You run blood gas and an electrolyte panel and get the following results. pH of 7.1, which is low. Partial pressure of CO2 
20 millimoles per liter, which is low. Bicarbonate, 16, which is low. This is going to drive American doctors wild. Crawl out of their skin, perhaps. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Having to parse these units that sound almost like their units, but not quite. Sodium is 140 millimoles per liter, which is normal. Potassium is three, which is low. And chloride is 100, which is normal. So what is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, dehydration? B, diabetic ketoacidosis? C, opioid use? Or D, sepsis? I'm going to start with Marissa. Oh, dear. I wish I hadn't already used my I know some of these words. (laughs) (laughs) A, why not? It's always dehydration somewhere. And that's what I call high-quality tool. Dehydration. Okay. Lauren. Ketoacidosis. Laura. Ketoacidosis. Ashlyn. Ketoacidosis. The answer is indeed DKA. I'm sorry, Marissa. I didn't provide you with a blood glucose because that would have given the game away. Yeah, but... I was looking at here. I was like, none of these numbers are sugar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be one of the first things that you'd check in this situation. You'd grab an Accu yeah. check immediately and you'd expect it to be extremely high. There are a few ways to tackle this. The clinical picture is fairly classic DKA or HHS, but I like to approach this as an acid-base problem, one of my favorite kinds of problems. Oh, short version, Joe, short version. We have a low pH, which means acidosis, not alkalosis. And we have a low bicarbonate, which makes it a metabolic rather than a respiratory acidosis, and a concomitant low pCO2, which is uh, compensatory. Among the options I gave, diabetic ketoacidosis is the only metabolic acidosis. Simple dehydration would result in a metabolic alkalosis, but I will note that the patient is hypovolemic. So dehydration, Marissa, is not a bad guess. (laughs) Their blood pressure drops and their heart rate spikes when they stand up. A dehydrated patient, you'd you'd probably also see that. Mm -hmm. Opioid use may result in central nervous system depression, which would depress the respiratory drive and cause respiratory acidosis. And sepsis results in hyperventilation and respiratory alkalosis. I'm happy to go into more detail, but I imagine everyone would rather move on. <laughs> you know why I pick ketoacidosis? Because it's fun to say. <laughs> Bonus so, point. Yeah. What's the appropriate treatment for diabetic ketoacidosis? Insulin. Thank you. So up until you started talking about their blood gas levels, I diagnosed pregnancy. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it sounds a whole lot like when I was pregnant. <laughs> Does anyone want to add anything to Laura's prescription of insulin for this patient? Probably not. It's it's extremely esoteric unless you are a medical practitioner. If you're going to be a regular run-of-the-mill ER doctor, you're definitely going to recommend immediately go lose 100 pounds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exercise until your feet fall off. And if you fail to not become diabetic, you will die. Yeah. I actually... forgot about how the counseling goes yeah pretty much i actually had in this stem i think i uh, accidentally lost it but i had that they had had a recent like uh, 10 pound weight loss i think did i have that in here no well anyway yeah no i i originally had that in the stem i must have lost it when i was revising it but that's uh, that's actually one of the uh, recent weight loss is uh, one of the most common things that happens when people newly diagnosed Mm -hmm. with because your body can't use the food that it's getting yep yep and yeah, yeah so, between so that and dehydration, want, yeah. Yeah. So what you, so fluids. What you want is 
It's okay. I just said like IV fluids. Yeah. So what you'd want is insulin, IV fluids to correct their hypovolemia, and importantly, potassium to correct the hypokalemia that they currently have and prevent the worsening of their hypokalemia when you give them insulin. Because when you give somebody insulin, one of the first things that happens is all of their serum potassium drops because it all gets sequestered inside the cells, which can be very dangerous, especially for somebody like this person who has low K already. So Laura gets that bonus point. And last question. A 55-year-old patient presents with severe nausea following a sudden onset severe headache on the right side of their head. They describe it as the worst headache of their life, stating that it came on like a thunderclap when they were shoveling the walk this morning. They have vomited twice since and are still extremely nauseated. When you take a headache history, they report that they had migraines when they were younger, but nothing like this. They had a headache earlier in the week, but it wasn't nearly so bad, and they can't recall having any other headaches in the last several years. Their family history is remarkable for myocardial infarction in their father, now deceased, and lung cancer in both grandparents on their mother's side. Their 74-year-old mother recently underwent a terional craniotomy to repair two MCA aneurysms. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, cluster headache, B, brain tumor, C, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or D, migraine? It's not a tumor. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start with Lauren. The migraines have come back. Okay, Lauren goes with migraine. Laura? Subarachnoid hemorrhage. Ashlyn? I think migraine because thunderclap. And Marissa? Cluster. Why not? (laughs) Okay. I'm going to have to give this one to Laura. The thunderclap headache with onset during exertion or straining and accompanied Mm. by severe nausea Mm. is a classic presentation of subarachnoid hemorrhage. A brain tumor would typically have a more insidious onset and often be worse at night or in the morning Mm. or simply when lying down. Uh, Migraines and cluster headaches don't really fit the clinical picture. You can make an argument for them. And you could also make an argument that given the headache history, like you would up migraine on the differential, even if it doesn't quite fit the clinical picture. But the thing that you are most worried about, the thing that you need to figure out Im- immediately is, is this a uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Mm-hmm. So bonus point. I love that you didn't even put myocardial infarction on there as an option. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bonus point. What do you do immediately for this patient? Get the spiders out of their brain. <laughs> do they have any of that? You know when you have a leak in in your radiator or whatever, and you put like some of that stuff in and it stops leaking? What do they have that's like that, but for people? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, whatever imaging would tell you what's going on. I do not know what to do with this. I'm going to give this to Ashlyn because the thing that you would get is an immediate head CT to confirm the diagnosis. (laughs) And if you can't get a head CT, you would seriously consider a lumbar puncture to look for blood. Although you have to make sure that they don't have elevated intracranial pressure because if you give them an LP and they have a mass effect going on, you're going to herniate them and they will probably die. And our friend Tiber won't be joining us this evening. I'm kind of a slight case of death. Oh my god. 
Yeah. Head CP, immediately followed by surgical repair of the aneurysm. Or you could you could hypothetically do coiling too, but this is an emergency and needs to be addressed right away. Yeah. So Laura gets that question and Ashlyn gets that bonus. Do you have scores for us? I Laura, do. Shall I do no. that? So are you saying there's none of that stuff that you put in the radiator for people? You, you know what? You'd be surprised how much epoxy like glue gets used on human beings in the OR. <laughs> okay. So but does it get used have, in it? Um, if they do have an aneurysm, do you just like, is brain surgery the only option? It's not the only option, and in fact, sometimes it's not an option, but for, did you say for an aneurysm or for a subarachnoid hemorrhage? I don't, sorry, I don't actually know. Sorry, so a subarachnoid hemorrhage is basically (laughs) due to a ruptured aneurysm. So people who have aneurysms, like an aneurysm is is like a sacula, it's basically like a... Oh, okay, aneurysm is before it breaks. Yes. So often when you find an aneurysm... most of the time, an aneurysm in your brain, so in this case, in the middle cerebral artery, the MCA. Uh, pr- pr- sorry, that's where... I was where, really uh, hoping for one sentence here. Okay. Yeah, short, short version. Basically, these aneurysms in the brain don't have symptoms usually until mm. they rupture, at which point mm. there's this sudden symptom. And that is an emergency and requires repair. Often aneurysms will be found incidentally on imaging because somebody will have a headache and they'll get like a a head CT or an MRI or something, or they'll have some other symptom that makes somebody worried about their brain and they'll find an aneurysm. Even though that aneurysm isn't causing their symptoms, they'll say, hey, we should consider going in to repair this because next time you're shoveling the walk or sitting on the toilet, you might have a subarachnoid hemorrhage and then... that'll be an emergency. So we'd rather do it when it's not an emergency. For that, usually, yes, it is a craniotomy. So they open up your skull. They open up the dura. They sort of unfold your brain. They get in there and they... (laughs) They will, for MCA, often they, they are literally taking the temporal lobe and the frontal lobe and kind of pulling them apart gently <laughs> to, to get oh. into the that sylvan fissure. And then they take a little a little metal clip and they just like clip off the, the bulging part of, of the aneurysm and leave it in there, seal you back up. And because it's clipped off, it's not subject to this high pressure when you strain and it's not going to rupture. You can also do coiling where they will like basically go in through an IV catheter or I, I, not an IV catheter. It's an arterial catheter usually. I think. I don't know. It's, Short version, some, some kind of vascular catheter should be an arterial catheter. And they'll basically send a little coil up in there. So you don't need surgery for that. That is not done as often right now. I don't know why I suspect it is not as successful, but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Or you can just, like, if it's not ruptured, you can just leave it and hope that it doesn't rupture. And in patients who are older, in patients who aren't good surgical candidates, or in patients who don't want to have their skull opened up, that's often what they'll do. So what are the scores, Lauren? Okay. So I've I've actually just finished the math as you finished your explanation. So there was 33... Sorry, go ahead. Can, Can I ask who won this one before we get to the final scores? Well, Laura is the med student I want. (laughs) <laughs> with eight out of the ten questions. Wow. Sounds like somebody's count- paying yeah. attention. 
Yes. Sounds like somebody's been working in the medical field for a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Ashlyn got six. Ashlyn got six. Yeah. I got three. And Marissa got one. Yay. I didn't shut out. Yay. Yay. You're on the board. <laughs> so there, I had to do some fancy math because we all had different size quizzes. So there was 33 questions overall. Jem got to answer 23. Laura got to answer 27. Ashlyn got, and I got to answer 28 each. And Marissa got to answer 26. Jam got six right, Laura got 14 right, Ashlyn got 15 right, Marissa got seven right, and I got 12 right. So we're going to do averages, like, excuse me, percentages. So Laura get, got 60%, Ashlyn got 65%, Ooh. I got 52%, Marissa got 30%, and Jem got 26%. I continue my streak of being terrible at quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> and Ash- Ashlyn has won. Well done, Ashlyn. Congratulations, Ashlyn. Congratulations. That is literally the most unexpected result that I could possibly have imagined tonight. She I honestly... so lucky bef- with both an anthropology quiz and a medical quiz. <laughs> they did say right before we started recording that they are going to lose. So, yeah. Well, you proved yourself wrong. <laughs> and I can share the score sheets with everybody else if they want to check my math, or we can just... It's fine. Call it a, a good night. Everything is made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> exactly! <laughs> Whose line is it anyway? <laughs> Just a reminder. Who was the, who was the former This doesn't guy? matter. Awesome. Okay, well, why don't, we, why don't we end our show with something nice? All right. Sure, I'll go first because the reason that I did not expect to win this quiz was because I unexpectedly got the bivalent booster today. Yay! She tripped Um, on a needle. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the pharmacy to check my blood pressure, actually, and I said, hey, my doctor wrote me a prescription for the bivalent because I don't think I'm technically eligible for it yet, but it's been literally a year since I had my last booster. And he was like, oh, I don't really care if you have a prescription. Do you want one? I have some. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes. Dave and I are going so, tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, a pr- I'm pretty brain foggy right now. A friend stopped by to get some soup before our recording, and I could not tell her that I was making pizza. Just, just my, my sentences wouldn't come out, so... Did not expect to win today. Thank you all for this <laughs> excellent experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, this this the bivalent like my arm still hurts a bit and I got it on Friday. Like <laughs> mm. so FYI. Yeah, I'm looking forward to tomorrow, but it's it's worth it. I've been so worried. Yeah. Awesome. I can go next because I actually have something nice Yay! this time. My Concord grape vine, which I've been growing for the last, I believe, four years, is finally big enough and mature enough that it produced several bunches of grapes this year. And I was able to harvest them and I was able to make approximately one and a third cups of grape jelly from it. You can cover some toast. And 
Huxley loves grape jelly. So we harvested the grapes together. And this morning we had grape jelly on toast. And it is very tasty. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mine is also about harvesting. So I'll just draft off the back of Laura's. We, well, Ashlyn spent the spring and summer making beautiful gardens, both in our yard and an allotment a couple of streets over that we were very lucky to get. And she harvested a whole bunch of the vegetables and everything. And then we had some folks over for some excellent soup, two different types, both borscht and a corn soup with corn from our own garden. And it was quite lovely and it was a nice day. And we still have a lot of leftover soup. And now I have a whole bunch of tomatoes in the freezer that I need to turn into some sort of sauce. <laughs> it's so Lovely. good to take all my veggies and make them into food for people that I love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we sat in the backyard and fought off the really weird looking wasps. And Look, Chris, it's a whole family of wasps. My Margaret, what a subpar ham. <laughs> Ate some good soup. And the Newman children time. were lovely. That's it. Marissa, do you have something nice? Well, for part of my birthday, I went to Washington to spend three days with my partner, Ada. And when we were going to breakfast, it was at a restaurant slash pie shop. Oh, and we ate breakfast. And as we were checking out, the waitress just casually asked, so do you have any plans for the rest of the day? And Ada said that, well, we're just celebrating Marissa's birthday here. And she looks at me and goes, would you like a piece of pie? I was like, I, I swear nobody believes me when I say this. I have never had pie before. <gasps> what? 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 I swear. I eat like a 10-year-old because I have so many food allergies that I don't often try new things. I have never mm. eaten pie. So she she gives me several options. I explain that I'm autistic and have weird things with some food textures. And she picks one out after hearing everything that I said. I thought she was going to give me a slice of pie. No. Drops a full honking big ass pie right in a box and gives it to me. (laughs) That's it. And I got free pie. It was amazing. It was what type of pie was it? It had chocolate. That's all I know. (laughs) I take pie very seriously, so I'm so excited for you. You have no idea. If if you saw on my Instagram the picture of it. What's that? Possibly chocolate silk based on the photo I saw. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I have mm, no idea. <laughs> it, it was, Did it, it was end very... up being a good texture? Yes. yes it was I very know light. a lot about good textures and bad textures. <laughs> it was very light. <laughs> That's excellent. Lovely. Wow. A first pie experience. I, yeah. I love pie so much. <laughs> I'm very happy for you. It's such Thank a good you. something nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My something nice is I spent a little while this evening as it was getting dark playing hide and seek with the kids outside. And it was just it was just a very nice time. And they, lovely. they eventually couldn't find me and went to get a flashlight. Come out, come out wherever you are. And I was hi- <laughs> hiding behind the, the air conditioning unit outside. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all of our wholesome somethings nights. Daddy, are you there? I'm scared. Oh, that's though. They went and got flashlights. Yep. I, I might have suggested that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when they came inside looking for for Daddy. <laughs> Aw. Look at us all being so wholesome. 
What okay. a good day. The least wholesome part of the episode. What are we talking about n- next month, Ashlyn? I would like to talk about Zodiac, all meanings. Okay. Let's do it. Choose your own Zodiac. <laughs> Choose your own Zodiac to talk about next month, and it's going to be a good time. I, right. It's the only topic that we have in the topics channel that I have suggested and not done. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now's the time. Okay. Well, I, I hope to be on that episode, but I will not make any promises because I'm starting clerkship on Monday as this is being recorded. So I will have already done that by the time this episode airs. And my my very first day, I'm on call for neurosurgery. So fun times. <laughs> so does that mean that you might like be in surgery the first day? I, I wouldn't be performing the surgery. Oh, of course. No, obviously. <laughs> I, I have actually all, already been in the OR for three different neurosurgeries. Oh, neat. Two terional craniotomies. That's like a frontotemporal craniotomy. And th- those were for aneurysm repairs. Mm. And one posterior craniotomy, which was for excision of a large tumor. And it was really cool. Yeah. So <laughs> what the funniest... <laughs> I texted this to Laura. Extremely funny to be in the operating room watching two neurosurgeons like dig in somebody's skull. And one of them says to the other, hmm, that looks like brain. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) In context, it made sense because they were actually like going through a tumor at that point. So Mm. (laughs) I believe they were indicating that they had reached the far side, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very funny to, to see two two people digging around in somebody's... Funny is probably an insensitive way to phrase it, but interesting nonetheless to, 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 hear, to hear looks like brain when they're in somebody's brain. <laughs> Very funny. All, All right. right. Everyone. Yeah. Thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Quizzes are always fun. Yeah. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at LUEEPodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend.